Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. À tous de DBO, attention pour les décomptes finales. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it there, uh... Up your cryo tank. Oh wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to the August 2018 edition of Space Boffins with Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham in partnership with the Naked Scientists. A no plush air conditioned studio for us this month. We've decided to record in the office. Surrounded by assorted space tat and memorabilia, including 1960s board game Blast Off, which we are going to attempt to play. I don't know whether it's from the 1960s. It's 69. Yeah, 69. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll put some pictures on social media, of course. And our guest, who will be playing with us, if you pardon the expression, is science author, writer, journalist, and Guardian columnist Stuart Clark, the polymath. The polymath. I think That's we can call you that, yeah. And a bit of a rocket special. We're going to be discussing the plans to launch satellites from the UK. And Richard visits a rocket control room and stands inside a launch pad. Were you wearing... It's so exciting. Were you wearing a hard I was, hat? Well, of course I was wearing a hard hat. Yeah, I think yeah, it was a blue hard hat oh, at that yes. point, yeah. Mm, so, fetching. Waddington's Blast Off. The game of modern space exploration and technology for one to four players. Stuart, do you like to have the um, the first roll of the dice on this game? I should say the object is to reach Pluto. So we're starting oh, from the Earth and then... It comes out with concentric circles from that, and then Pluto at the uh, the furthest. Okay. Of course, we you wouldn't better do that now. You know, Pluto not a planet anymore. I it, it's still a planet in my heart. So best to explain actually. We've got a square blue space board. We've each got a control panel, which is yellow with. With different circles on, with moving, <laughs> moving yeah, moving needles, dials. You can pl- dials. you can move the dials, and there's also even a separate control panel. Yeah, I haven't quite worked out what that's for. It's just uh, got the planets on. So it's the object Venus essentially, we have to achieve orbit and then stay at the right speed. So it's quite a, quite a lot about orbital velocity, uh, velocity. So I think there's there's a sort of educational element to this. Otherwise, you fall back to Earth, and yeah, we have these yeah. lovely little plastic counters which are in two parts so there's a a space capsule part which is very much considering this is 1969 remarkable that they're like the gemini capsule and then there's a satellite so that's a satellite as well so if you want to roll first and see if you can achieve orbit um now we haven't got a dice we've got a dice app uh, but click the dice rather than the bit at the bottom because that's for a casino ad okay okay so um this is your phone yeah it is my phone and my credit card's linked to it so right the uh, other side oh there there yeah failed already yeah uh, oh, it's asked me to rate it. Am I enjoying dice? <laughs> <laughs> not, not now. Oh, look at that. 
A six. A six. Uh, wow, straight. Which, which colour do you want to be? Blue, yellow or green? Oh, I'll, I'll go green because that's the nearest to me. Okay, so if you want to take that up to, uh, to, to six, to, you go to, to six. six. Yeah, you go to okay. level six. I cool. think you have to roll it again at this Ooh. point. Oh, one. Well, let's go uh, to, the, to the real stuff now because um, quite recently I was at the Farnborough air show and that's always quite a fun place to visit Uh, not just if you like planes actually but also if you like space because it's got a dedicated space day there's always an area where you can spot members of the european space agency in fact jan Werner and and various people were there were spotted there and you can go from stand to stand where companies are sort of showcasing what uk space has got to offer as well as european companies as well but this time and this year it turned out uk space has got to offer quite a lot. Yeah, the UK Space Agency announced it was providing funding for a proposed spaceport in Sutherland, Northern Scotland, and it's also supporting development for plans to launch rockets from aircraft in Cornwall, Glasgow and Snowdonia. Now, some of the money will go to two companies who are going to help launch the UK into a commercial space flight. Most people had heard of one of them. That was the US company Lockheed Martin, but not the other one. It's called Orbex. Had you heard of them, Stuart? No. I, no I hadn't. Just... And I noticed on the press release they said that they were coming out of stealth mode. <laughs> oh, I'd and love that's to be very in stealth true. mode. Right, well, they are actually. They're based in Britain. And it's hardly surprising that few of us knew about them because until recently they didn't even have a website. Now, Orbex, as I've since found out, it's a micro-launcher company. It's got the aim of putting small satellites into space. And it was only founded in 2015. And yet now it's firmly on the map. Well, I spoke to Orbex's chief executive, Chris Lamour. Lam- I want to say Lamour, but that's like love, isn't it? Lamour. Must be- anyway, I asked him whether that low profile was intentional. Yeah, it absolutely was. Um, we, we deliberately set out to do things rather than talk about them and in fact um, in the last three years I've, I've only done one public speaking event at the Royal Aeronautical Society last November for 15 minutes and I think there we shocked a few people that we were already firing engines and, and showing avionics and things like this at the Farmer International Air Show we've, we've kind of come out a bit more on the back of the announcement by the UK Space Agency we're very happy to be selected in the final two vertical launch solutions there on the same site which was selected completely independently by the way and it's great to see that we both came to the same conclusion and it's obviously great to be in the company of, of uh, such major aerospace players. Now, tell me about your micro-launcher. It's called Prime. That's it, as far as I know about it. Well, tell me more. Um, it's called Prime because we want our, our customers to feel like they are the prime payloads and not a secondary payload. That's a deliberately chosen name to make them feel like they are the key customer and not some afterthought. Which is often what happens with micro-satellites, Precisely, isn't it? yes. And in fact, uh, one of the big problems in this market is not, is not the cost, is that these satellites just can't get out of the queue to get on the launcher. Even if they had paid contracts, they're still waiting two years after they've paid. So our focus is on getting them to orbit. It's not so much on low cost. It's about on-time, responsive, reliable delivery. The launcher itself is, is quite novel. It, it looks like a rocket on the outside, but uh, inside we've chosen a novel uh, fuel, which is propane, biopropane, actually. Propane has a, some really interesting physical properties. So the, the most important to us is that it doesn't freeze when you uh, chill it down to about the same temperature as liquid oxygen. And that means we can remove a lot of the structure inside the the tanks of the vehicle and get a much lighter vehicle overall, up to about a 30% reduction in in mass, dry mass of the vehicle from using propane. As a system, propane is slightly more powerful than uh, RP-1, which is is more commonly used, and very much more uh, efficient than than methane in some respects. 
In terms of height, it's about 17, 17 metres yeah. high. What else distinguishes it from any other rocket, would you say, in terms of appearance? From the outside, it looks like any rocket, frankly. Um, the inside is what makes it different. And propane drives a lot of other benefits. For example, we're able to build turbo pumps in a way that makes them very, very simple, bringing them down to almost automotive grade turbo pumps. We also have an ignition system that we've, we've built and have running now on our test engines that has no moving parts and no electrics involved, which is good for our payloads because there are no high-tension uh, spark plugs and those kind of things in the engine. So we've got a very reliable, robust, simple system on the engines that we've been running now for months on the, on the test engines. We're also, what stage are you at in your testing? We've had the engine running for more than a almost a year and a half now in various formats. We just recently moved to the flight weight additively manufactured engine, which we've, we've been producing with a, a partner. And we're now investing quite a lot of money in additive manufacturing capabilities for those engines. The flight computer is built and is currently running the engine management system. This morning we announced that the guidance, navigation and control system will be supplied to us from uh, Electnor Demos. That's propulsion, flight computers, guidance, navigation control. Uh, the other big system is the tanks and structures where we have a novel patent pending not even a concept, it's moved now into realisation and that's already, uh, we've built carbon fibre full-scale tanks already. It's interesting because, you know, the word novel keeps coming up and what you're describing in so many areas, there's quite an engineering change here in terms of how you're thinking of, how you're building it. Who have you managed to secure at that level to help you with this? To take that back a step, the micro-launchers are different because they suffer from a, a sort of a fundamental mass challenge there's a square cube law that applies to rockets. The bigger you get, the more efficient they become volumetrically. You, you have more volume enclosed by the metal or carbon fibre on the outside. Conversely, the smaller you get, you get a penalty. You become quite heavy. And we started with propane to solve that problem, to get rid of that kind of the mass challenge of, of a micro-launcher. And that then drove a lot of other decisions through the vehicle. Now, um, to help us with that, um, just by chance, I went to business school with the CEO of the world's largest propane company. I mean, really, by chance, the engineers decided. And then I, a couple of weeks later, I remember, oh, I know the, I, I know the CEO. Um, so I told him we're building a propane rocket. He's like, what can we do? So they've been helping us technically with um, purifying and, and chilling and controlling the propane um, for rocket flight, space flight. In addition, we've been able to persuade the former director general of ESA to join our board, John Jacques Laudin. We've just uh, brought on board a man called Jan Skolmli, who was involved with Sea Launch, one of the founders of Sea Launch, and, and worked there for 20 years, and was recently running launch at SSTL. And within the team, I, I always say we've got kind of three sets of skills. There are people with deep professional space backgrounds. They, they've built systems that have flown to uh, interplanetary, um, in low Earth orbit, and to deep space. I think one of our guys has 50 systems currently in spaceflight. We've got guys who've got more hands-on engineering skill with building rockets themselves some of them come out of amateur projects in europe they've built five or six suborbital rockets and some other guys have worked on ariane 5 and ariane 6 we have that sort of nice kind of hands-on finger experience then we have business guys like me who understand how to build tech companies this is my sixth tech company it it happens to be rockets this time we're just bringing on more uh, talent from various parts of the core space industry in europe um, into the team and growing that out now. And we're putting a new factory in Scotland that will bring in uh, ultimately more than 100 jobs building rockets. Is there any other company around the world that you aspire to be like or are you doing something that's totally different? Well, if there's one company out there that's done a brilliant job, it's Rocket Lab in New Zealand. I mean, those guys, my hat is off to everyone there. They've done an absolutely marvellous job and they've really proven that it's possible. So I, I really look up to what they've done. 
people often talk about companies like this being like SpaceX, but I don't really view us as a company like SpaceX. I don't think we have the, those kind of ambitions. You've um, got an X in the name. Yeah, but that's kind of accidental. <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest, we never wanted to be called Orbex. So the company's called Orbital Express. But everybody, as we, <laughs> as we moved along, everybody called it Orbex. So we just kind of, just kind of gave in to the tide and called it Orbex. It was never intentional to sound like SpaceX at all, but, uh, but here we are, you know. Hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to go and see the launch. Will yeah. you allow, you know, well, as, we, as, we, as we mature, I think the factory will be the most interesting thing to start with in the next couple of years. And as we, as we get more interesting stuff there, we'll invite um, uh, you to come along, Space Boffins and, and various other media to come along and see what's going on. And as we get to launch, uh, and hopefully it goes well, and, and it's not, the pictures aren't too dramatic, uh, which always makes a better story, but it's not quite such a good day for me, no, I imagine. No. I uh, think we'd be wishing you well, don't worry. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, I, I hope it goes well as well. Chris Lamour from Orbex. I like the way he's talking there. He says, one of his opening statements, we do things rather than talk about them. Yes, it's like the opposite of my life, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You just, you, you just get on and do it. And the thing that excites me most about all of this is, I mean, can the UK actually become this you know, commercial centre for launching? All the pieces seem to be being put into place... I mean, can it really happen? I'm in no no doubt now after that day at the air show and speaking to various people there. And I also spoke to some people from the Glasgow Presswick Airport who also want to take part. My answer would be definitely yes. They're all go. And they're at stages that you wouldn't have believed Mm. they were like like Orbex. They're way ahead. It's just fantastically exciting. What what I think is interesting, and and, uh, Stuart, I think this is maybe what gives them the edge or this the edge over previous attempts i mean the uk has built a launcher before and launched into orbit Mm. before back Mm. in what 1971 with with the prospero satellite Uh, this is commercially driven so the uk space agency is you know it's given some money it's not a great deal of money Mm. Mm. i think this is the outcome of a of a real change that's been taking place over the last 10 or more years and that is this realization that space is invisibly woven now into our everyday lives and that the the aerospace industry um, can continue to grow even through recessions even through bad economic times it's you know to coin that phrase it is the future there's always been this criticism or or perhaps it's been a plus that the uk space sector has succeeded despite government rather than because of government it's not like you know you look at france or germany or or the us of course where a huge amount of state money of taxpayers money has gone into into space you see i remember it must have been gosh 15 years ago or something like that where the academics the astronomers and the people who were interested in using space were being told all the time you must couch the language of why we're doing this in economic terms it it must be seen to have positive economic impact to the country and even if that's just a byproduct but that's that's how you get government to take this seriously and i really think that you know the people that that want to launch and want to do science in space have embraced that, embraced the commercial side of everything, and that's why, you know, we're where we are today. I mean, is there evidence, if we're talking commercially, that you can make money from this? It feels still a little bit like it's a matter of faith, 
But there are definitely people who have commercial visions. I was at a company uh, just over in St Albans. They are planning to put up microsatellites that will capture images of Earth that we can plug into you know, at any time and eventually have 3D goggles and so be able to just look at the world from anywhere in orbit and zoom in almost anywhere. And, and here they see clear economic sort of potential for selling these images and in, in a wide, wide range of applications from entertainment to um, more serious sort of environmental things. It's the new area, I suppose, for entrepreneurs and the new place for people to imagine ways to make a profit from space. And we've always been an unashamedly British-based, European-based space podcast. There are plenty of US podcasts out there. Listen back to the early days. We've now been going seven years. Sometimes you're, I feel, maybe trying too hard to push the UK in space thing. But I feel, I don't know how you feel as someone who, you know, you write about this for for The Guardian and and for other publications, that actually this is all for real now. You could actually put the UK up there. I think we're not quite there yet, but the potential to be there is is very clear now. And if we can maintain this effort, it will be truly amazing, actually. You know, we could be the country that people come to. We will see what happens. Should we carry on with one more go on this game? Okay, if only so. It no, I've worked that. it out now. So the first roll of the dice, you achieved orbit, and you turn your dial to the orbit number. So on your little mm-hmm. control panel, your cardboard control panel, you turn it up to as uh, so you reach six. Then you rolled again. Mm-hmm. So you follow down that dial where it says six, but it says one, but one is red, and that means your orbit is unstable. So you turn your dial to unstable. So, Stuart, you should be on six on your orbit number, but your orbit is unstable. So what did you roll on your... I got six and a three. So you you should have moved three. I'm on course. So you're on course, and uh, it's my turn to roll, I think, but I haven't actually achieved orbit yet. So if you want to... Two. Oh, that's not good, is it? So I've got to two, and then roll again. Oh, somehow I've hit the wrong guy. So oh, I've so got, have you joined a casino? I've always, oh, it says 80s top models. Do you remember these sexy supermodels? <laughs> it's, it's a dodgy thing. Here we go, it's five. Dodgy, dodgy old app. Right, OK. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. And I turn, so my dial, I've got two, but I've got five. So I'm a stable orbit. So I only am two. I'm on a stable orbit. Okay, so yeah. what is it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. This is the sort of game you just need a load of alcohol to there play, is, actually. There is probably a, like, a reason why we're not all playing Waddington's Blast Off. Yes, that's right. It's a bit like Monopoly post-Christmas. You get to a point where you just don't care as long as you have another sherry. It's that thing. Anyway, we were going back to uh, the UK. Although that the UK Space Agency funding went to a seed money effect to the Scottish launch site. There was another announcement at the air show. Spaceport Cornwall revealed that it had signed an agreement with Virgin Orbit. Now, Virgin Orbit will use an adapted 747 to carry a rocket about 35,000 feet, where it will then release uh, the payload uh, to blast into space. And the maiden flight is due to take place later this year, with the first flight from Cornwall being 2021. Now, another satellite launch company, this time based in Edinburgh, called Skyrora, is also working with Spaceport Cornwall with engine testing planned by the end of the year. So I caught up with Daniel Smith from Skyrora. 
So we've just announced that we're going to start our engine testing program um, by testing our third stage engine in Cornwall Airport, Newquay. So we'll be starting that, we expect, by September-October time this year. And that just allows us to keep momentum going. We are looking at testing our other engines uh, up north in Scotland, but to, to enable us to move fast, because it is a space race, we have to test as soon as possible. So we're starting the third stage engine test in Cornwall this year. The orbital launch vehicle is what we're working towards. We will do a suborbital launch next year to test our technology. But in terms of the satellite launcher itself, it's around 23 metres in length, 2 metres in diameter. But the key point is that it uses hydrogen peroxide as its oxidizer, so it's hydrogen peroxide and kerosene. So in terms of hydrogen peroxide, the interesting thing there is it was used in Black Arrow back in the 1960s. And so we're basically following on. We've learned a lot and been inspired by that, that heritage. But the good it's like coming full circle. Exactly, yeah, yeah, that's it. And the, the good thing, again, about hydrogen peroxide is that in the UK, it's the perfect oxidizer. And the, the reason I'll say that is because um, you're able to store it. It's completely storable, unlike liquid oxygen, so it can sit on the launch pad for, for hours, days even, waiting to launch. So as I'm sure you know, the weather isn't always amazing in Scotland. So it means if we have one of those bad periods of weather, then we can just keep the, la- the launcher sitting there. We don't have to detank. We don't have to remove the fuel. We can just keep it setting so it's completely responsive and, and versatile, yeah. Now, Skyrora will be a, a vertical launcher. Cornwall is looking towards horizontal launch, so it's purely the testing, the engine testing that you will do down, yeah. down in Cornwall. Uh, the facilities are all there. Yeah, yeah. So basically it was used, the area we're going to use was used by the Bloodhound supersonic car program. So we're good friends with those guys and they suggested that we look at it as a way to enable us to move quickly and get our engine tested you know, after it was manufactured. So yeah, that's it. It's not talking about launching or anything from Cornwall. That wouldn't make sense. It's very much just engine testing. But we're, we're a UK company, so we're delighted to work with a different part of the UK than Scotland. Although we're based in Scotland, we want to work with suppliers and partners all over the UK and beyond. For me, this is quite an eye-opener because I'd heard of Clyde Space, who are based in Glasgow, but Skyrora had not crossed my radar. And now here you are looking to do a suborbital launch next year. Where have you been? Where, where do you come from? Uh, we're moving fast, first of all. So we are a young company. You know, we've not been around for long. But we didn't want to go out and sort of shout about things that weren't there yet. You know, we are aware that there's a lot of launch vehicle developers that come out and just disappear. So we, we felt it'd be best to hold off, you know, do something real first. And then we can start telling people, you know, you know making sure that people notice us at that point. It's not about PR, it's not about going around with drawings. You know, we've got real hardware. We've got hydrogen peroxide being distilled in the UK. We've got an office full of people. So we've got real things now, and now we're ready to tell people about what we're doing. And your suborbital launch will be from Bembecula in Newis, which is in the highlands of Scotland, chosen, I assume, because of its remoteness. Yeah, so we're still we're still finalising the exact location, but that is a really good option for us. Yep, Bembecula, we're, we're close with the, the range there, the kinetic range. So we're in talks with them about, about doing the suborbital launch from there. Uh, and in terms of the orbital launch, we're just open really when it comes to whichever spaceport is ready and whichever is good for us at the time you know we've still got some time which is why again we're doing suborbital launches first because it lets us test the technology lets us take a step-by-step approach and um, because we do have time while the spaceport is being developed but once it's ready we look forward to launching from whichever one is, is suitable for us to go from you must see this as a, a really exciting period in that the uk is is suddenly got a kick up its bum i was gonna say <laughs> i might as well say it in terms of um encouraging commercial space flight yeah i think so it's really exciting i think it's it's like what it must have been like in the 60s when all the space stuff was happening with the moon and everything it's in, we're in a new commercial space race now and you mentioned Clyde space and there's some other great 
satellite companies in Glasgow and, and in the UK, you know, generally. So now that we've got the space for it, we've got the launcher, we're really in a great position going forward. And what about you? What's your background? Are you a, a, an aeronautical engineer or, or somebody from the business side? I'm from the business side, so very much IT uh, background. Um, yeah, the, a number of us from the management team are from IT and we've just been building this technical team in the UK because there's so much great experience in the UK, you know, good engineers and, and a lot of people that we could tap into and bring on board. So we're growing the team very fast and we are looking for more people. So uh, there is a careers at scarora.com email address that anyone who's listening who would be interested in finding out more, please get in touch because we are recruiting aggressively now. As I say, it's a space race and we've got to move fast. Daniel Smith from Skyrora. There you go. I love the way you kept saying, you know, it's a space race, it's a space race, we've got to move fast. And it mm. is, isn't it? It's a new commercial space race and the UK's doing it. Yeah, that was one of the things that struck me as well, that level of, of urgency to, you know, to get to market first, to be able to uh, develop these products and offer these services. Yeah, it's all very exciting. And it's all very fast too. And when you think about, say, with reaction engines how long it mm. took them to... The technology was all there. It was actually getting that momentum of investment. Mm. And now you've got these small companies everywhere getting serious, serious amounts of investment. What I think's intriguing about this particular company is it's essentially taking those old designs from Black Arrow, Black Knight, these these UK designs from the 1960s, and modernising them. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that shows that rocket technology hasn't really changed a huge amount. I mean, you know, Sue mentioned reaction engines, but a rocket's still basically a rocket. And this is where I start to become not cynical as such but just kind of slightly reticent about the whole thing because surely the future is in horizontal space plane technology and reaction engines and there are sort of air breathing engines and things and things like this i assume that there are extremely good technical reasons for the slow pace of that development but it still seems like quite a frustrating weight for them Having said all that, if modern manufacturing and modern materials can now make rockets more efficiently, more cheaply, um, then and that's the way we have to go to start with, then totally great and more power to the people that are doing it. Now, we'll show some pictures of the various bits of space tat and other things in, in our office here. But I've just noticed actually next to you, Stuart, mm-hmm. you can actually get it out as a best of eagle magazine best, oh look at yeah, this best Here of eagle is. you see there on the shelf um it's purely by by coincidence so best of eagle this was the oh. 1950s uh british comic book and uh, with uh, the uh, space hero dan dare and these are full of basically single you know earth to orbit earth to venus rockets so this was the dream the dream of the 1950s and what you're saying is we haven't really actually moved on look stop looking at yes i was captured here by cortez conqueror of mexico okay so, interesting yes. yeah there's so no, it's not all it's no not all down there no no mm. but there are, there's this you find the spacecraft look look actually like uh world war ii planes mm. but what, what i'm saying is that dream of earth to orbit earth to the moon earth to mars in one ship that can come back and be reused again and again and again that just hasn't happened has it no not yet i'm still hopeful 
Okay, now put that away. I'll put that away now. Right, so we've got the board game. We got. We shouldn't have done it in the office, so that's the problem. <laughs> that is the problem. Okay, so we'll have some pictures uh, from Farnborough on our various social media channels. See, that makes us sound like we're on top of it. And uh, still to come on Space Boffins, I visit a rocket launch pad in the jungle and a rocket control room. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef, take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> the Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people? Sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist Podcast or head over to our website. You're listening to Space Boffins. Our guest is Stuart Clark, and um, I think we've sort of given up on the uh, on the board. Oh no, 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 no! Because I think you could be crashing back to Earth in a second. Yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite keen not to be in an unstable orbit. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Now you need to just roll again. This is only stage one of the game. There's, two, there's you've broken my, look, you've broken my phone now. I've it's lost not the even will working. To okay, let's let's just do the uh, roll the dice. You've got a five. You're okay. I like think you're five. out of the stable or uh, unstable orbit. Okay. If you look at your dial. So you move it um, five. Which one were you? I was green. Yeah, so I think you're in the command area now. So I think oh you can blast goodness. off to the uh, to the other area. Yeah. I mean, this is the most ludicrously complicated, complicated. I mean, it's beautifully designed. It looks lovely. but the... This is why this board game, have you noticed, it's it's virtually <laughs> in mint condition. <laughs> it's about 60 years old. Well, and 50, it's 50 years 50, old. 50 years old. Mint yeah. condition, well, and I now think, we know why. I think this says a lot. This is the sound. This is the sound of the instruction book. It's that many pages. That's why we're struggling to play this game. Oh, okay. On. What are these little cards? I have no are... idea. I haven't figured that out Those yet. Are beautiful cards. Extra rocket thrust. Yeah, okay. Move your well, ship X six extra places. Yeah, uh, they're beautiful. And weirdly, they've got these beautiful designs of the Apollo spacecraft on they them. They are gorgeous, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they have. So we'll, we'll take some nice... Honestly, visually, this game is beautiful. But <sighs> to play... <sighs> anyway, c'est maintenant, c'est. I'll do that again. What language is that? Really? That's French. <laughs> right, okay. I was just checking. Et maintenant, c'est. Is it et maintenant? Et maintenant? Et maintenant? C'est. C'est. Et maintenant? Stuart? Well, I, I, think, I think what you're you missing... You don't speak German. Yeah. <laughs> I think what you're missing, Richard, yeah. is, is the shrug. Uh, et maintenant? Ah, oh, see. C'est. Instantly better. And also the hand, the gestures. Yeah. Is like, et maintenant? Et maintenant? C'est. Anyway, here's a countdown. <laughs> That's the test of the new Vega C rocket, which took place successfully in June at the European spaceport in French Guiana. Now, Vega is different to the other rockets we've been hearing about. It's one of the few launchers in the world which is based on a solid rocket. And essentially that means Vega is a giant firework. You light it and it goes and it doesn't stop until it runs out of fuel. Now, Vega C will have the largest first stage solid rocket made in a single piece ever built. The next Vega launch, uh, which is on the current Vega model, is due later this month. We'll put the Aeolus wind-measuring satellite into orbit. A few days before the first stage of the rocket arrived at the launch pad, I visited the mobile launch gantry, where the rockets assembled and launched. 
and spoke to the engineer in charge, Marco Calcabrini. This is described as a small launcher, but we look up at this towering gantry. I mean, how many, let's have a go, one, two, three, four, five, I mean, I can't, but ten storeys high, something like that? Yes, currently twelve. Twelve, OK. Yeah, so they are currently twelve. We added the last one for a bigger sea uh, launcher, but there is uh, also a very upper part where there is nothing the, <laughs> the, uh, on the stage. We perform uh, all, all our activities uh, on the entire head of the mobile gantry, starting from the level zero up to the 45, uh, 45th uh, level. And we work everywhere on the launcher inside the mobile gantry. And you bring each stage in yes. and put the whole thing together in inside. this in within the gantry? Yes, we put everything inside the gantry. We never move the launcher. It always remains on the same pad. We bring here stage after stage. We build the launcher inside the mobile gantry and three hours before the H0 we move the gantry so it will always remain here we can take a look now we have the rails for the first stage we have there the structure where that we use for tilting of the second and third stage then fourth stage and satellite stage right here all directly in the correct position and we move them up the correct platform and we install them just give us the timeline here so you're currently preparing yes. right now as we stand outside the, the launch gantry you're preparing for aeolus the yes. uh, weather satellite european yes. space agency wind satellite so it'll yes. measure the wind and you're, you're getting ready to to get that in between when it arrives and when you launch how many days how long have you got from the first stage to the h0 31 days and the last part of that campaign is just 12 days the last part of the campaign we have reduced also this part of campaign starting it was 12 days we have arrived at to nine days so we bring here the satellite nine days before the h0 and we work on the entire uh, launcher for eight days do you feel the pressure when it's going on, and particularly when it's a, a publicly built satellite? <laughs> and, I mean, Aeolus, uh, that's a satellite that's been a long time coming. It's taken a long time to build. We expected it since a long time, but uh, there is always pressure. Me and my colleagues, we love this job. We do it uh, also for the pressure, and uh, we will never get used to the pressure, but it will help us to, to work better. We cannot uh, miss the time. The delightful Marco Calcabrini, who's currently putting the finishing touches to the Vega launcher, ready for the Aeolus launch. It's worth talking about Aeolus, isn't it, um, Stuart? This is the, the world's first monitoring satellite. For wind, yes. I think it's really, really um, interesting. You would think, obviously, that the, 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 the wind is such an integral part to weather forecasting which it is, but the way we get those measurements to put in the models at the moment is just through balloons and weather stations and things like that. Here, for the first time, will be a kind of proof of concept that you can do it from orbit. And Aeolus itself is going to take something like 64,000 wind profiles Every day, so it would be able to what use the laser, I think, so it will look through the through the atmosphere, get the wind at every level. Yes, and unless it gets um, stopped by a thick cloud, so if it's if it's thin cloud, it will get um, wind profiles from something like thirty kilometers in uh, altitude down to the surface. Um, but 
less than that if there's thick cloud. And it does it by using a laser and then looking for um, the, the amount of light that's scattered back towards the spacecraft. Gosh, now, that is incredible, actually, isn't it? Using a, yeah. a laser and light scattering to measure wind. Yes, yes. You just wouldn't put those things together. I wouldn't anyway. And I mean, this is one reason mm. developing all of this that's, that's, that's uh, caused the delays in the programme and on all the rest of it. If it works, it will open the pathway to a fleet or something much better to come of these kind of things because it has to be in a quite a low orbit um, to get enough light back to it. And that sort of 400 kilometre or so orbit means that it's subject to um, orbital decay through the upper levels of the atmosphere. So its lifespan is only something like you know, three and a quarter years or, or something like that. But it's almost the missing link, isn't it, in, in weather forecasting? I, I was at, I think we were talking about this on the podcast, I was at the UMETSAT in, uh, in Darmstadt, the, the headquarters for the European what's it, meteorological, where the people who run the meteorological satellites for Europe, and they have the best control room, fantastic Mm. control room, and you're seeing these live pictures come in from the satellites in geostationary orbit, which are spinning, so it's it's almost like an old-fashioned TV where you're getting the the lines coming in one by one, it's building up this this picture, or facts. Anyone remembers facts? That that ages me, doesn't it? So you get that 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 built up, and they've got this constant, you know, by the second mm. weather monitoring. But it's extraordinary we don't know about the wind on that basis as well. Yeah, exactly, and of course, all our weather systems are moved around by the wind. You know, we're sitting here in the studio today, and it's raining. Well, just a few days ago, it was supposed to be bright and brilliant sunshine, and this rain wasn't coming until the weekend. So. You know, something you know something hasn't worked quite right in the models there. Just knew we were about to go on holiday. I think you'll find that that's oh. that's normally how it works. Oh, that's the missing link <laughs> in weather forecasting. <laughs> yeah. uh, have we given up on the game, by the way? Yeah. Okay. Do it looked a little bit disappointed. I have to say, was it, I was I was aiming for Mars. It's honestly the instructions. I think we need we need to have a seminar to go through the instructions no, the and then bit, maybe the have best a game. Bit, sorry. Is that? I'm a little bit worried you've, you've been signing up for things on my in-app purchases on that. Anyway, there is a secret, stop it. There is a secret at the heart of the Kourou space, stop. There's a secret at the heart of the Kourou spaceport. The main control room you see on TV, that's got the big screens, the VIP seating, a sort of goldfish bowl at the centre with uh, all the controls. That isn't actually the main control room for the rockets. They're actually controlled from a building much closer to the Ariane 5 and Vega launch pads. A building without windows and constructed with blast-proof walls. I'm Jean-Marc Durand. I've been working uh, in foreign space for 25 years. And I've been living in French Guiana for uh, 23 years, almost all my working life, I would say. So just describe the area we're in, because we're in in a bunker here. Although from the outside it looks like an office block, actually it's a secure bunker. Yes, while you are inside, you you don't see that. But this is a very uh, building which is designed in order to protect the people working inside. That's what we say bunker, but this is perhaps not the best word. And it's the centre for the control. So we've got the, the large control room just off to our left, which is, you know, as you'd expect, consoles and, and screens. That's for Ariane 5. And a much smaller control room here with really only uh, four uh, benches with consoles on for Vega. And this is where you're actually controlling the launches from. 
Yes, this is from here. That's for the, the day of the launch. And during the campaign, uh, every time you want to control the launch vehicle itself and the, the facilities around there, the, what you say, with ground facilities, this is from here that uh, we, we control, we check the temperature, pressure, and everything. We're three kilometers away from the launch pads themselves. Yes, we are. Even so, if something went wrong, this is in the danger zone. I won't say dangerous. I would say that the safety studies showed that uh, we need to clear this area in case of incident on the launch pad. We have to keep all the people in, uh, in safe conditions. Uh, and what about the control itself? No one presses a button and says go, but what is the procedure? I mean, you must turn a key or say, right, launcher, you're on your own. This is a question we usually have from, from children, you know. It's a fair you, question. You see, yes, uh, you see in cartoon or somewhere, uh, press the button and then lift off. So I, I tell you, this is not the case. The computer knows the time of the lift off. What you only can do, you can stop or I would say to hold uh, during a, a time in order to reset and to restart the, the system. So you can stop for a while, but you, uh, you, you, you don't press the button for the liftoff. You said how long you've, you've worked here. Does it ever lose its excitement, its, its thrill? I can't tell you, frankly, that it's, it's never been a, a routine. We, we are exciting. You can't, if you uh, work here, you, you know uh, the, the, the time and the number of people working for each launch. It's huge. It means for us, it's, it's, it has been and will be already, uh, or, uh, always exciting. Uh, at the time of the liftoff, we're exciting and we uh, hope that everything goes well. Another set of incisive questions from Richard Hollingham there. <laughs> Love the way yes. he smacked you down. Yes, that's right. Uh, Jean-Marc Durand uh, from Ariane Espace in the European Spaceport Control Room. I posted pictures of the big red button. There's several big red buttons, actually. Uh, and they only stop the launch. And uh, I put them on Twitter. And I'll try and um, find some more and put them up there as well. It's funny, big red buttons did really well on Twitter. <laughs> Tim Peake retweeted my big red buttons <laughs> pictures. So uh, it does I very well. I love it. I love it. The game. Reviews? In terms of playability, it's a one out of ten for me. <laughs> in terms of pure beauty... In terms of the actual board itself, the planets, the cards, the little counters and our control panels, it's a 10. The app. Yeah, I'm taking that away, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Stuart? That's a 9 out of 10 for me. Um, I feel defeated by it. Yeah, I I think we do need to sort of seriously sit down, read the rules and work it out. It might be okay. I'll tell you what, what I also think. I think getting a real rocket into orbit is probably simpler. (laughs) (laughs) i think you're almost certainly right yeah there is a reason as sue said this has been in the box for uh, 50 odd years Um, no one's played it no thank you very much uh stuart clark for being our our guest here on a slightly hysterical uh summer space boffins you can find stuart's work all over the internet uh, in a good way obviously and he'll be popping up on radio three soon in a series we'll tell you more about in the next couple of months Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with the Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. We'll be back next month. Promise no more board games ever again on Space Boffins. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (sighs) Where's that dust coming from? 
Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.